Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a chance to gather uh, with your bride, with your church, Jesus. And Lord, I ask that you would uh, speak to us today through your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would use your word uh, like you tell us uh, in uh, 2 Peter, that your word is, uh, is living and active, Lord. Uh, you tell us that in Hebrews as well. So Lord, we ask that you would sharpen us uh, and refine us to look more and more like you in our, in our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would move this way a little bit. This is picking up feedback. Uh, okay. Picking it out at us. All right. Sorry about that. Uh, several years ago, I uh, I was on the internet and I read an article about a, a Japanese World War II soldier uh, named Hiro Onoda. And part of what made Hiro's story really fascinating uh, is that right in when the war uh, was about to end in 1945, kind of in the final days of World War II, uh, Hiro was stationed in the Philippines and some of the other Japanese soldiers. Uh, began to retreat off the island as the war and kind of the tide was turning. Uh, but Hero's commander uh, pulled him aside and pulled a group of them aside and told them as clear as he could, whatever you do, do not surrender. And so then about six months later, the war ended. Uh, but Hero, true to his orders, he kept fighting. And so him and a group of about three Japanese soldiers continued fighting the war and doing raids and, and attacks and things like that. And, and this went on for a while until eventually... Hiro was the only Japanese soldier left on the island, still fighting the war. And he continued to fight. And, and week after week and month after month, there, there were lots of attempts that were made to try to tell Hiro, like, hey, the, the war is actually over. You, you can stop fighting. But Hiro just simply assumed, like, this is just some sort of elaborate propaganda to try to, you know, trick me or something like that. Until finally one day, almost 30 years after World War II had ended, his commander, who originally gave that command, finally flew back to the island and tracked him down and said, Hero, the war actually is over. You can stop fighting at this point. And I've always found Hero's story to be fascinating for, for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, I think on the one hand, it's, it's admirable, like, you know, his, his determination and kind of single-minded obedience and that sort of intensity is, is, is kind of impressive. But, but also, at the, at the same time, Hero was ultimately misguided I mean, he wasn't just fighting a losing battle. He, he was fighting a war that had been over for years, hopelessly waiting for a turning of the tide that was never actually going to happen for him. And, and I think if we're honest, th this is sometimes how the world can view us as believers, especially during this season of Advent, you know, where we're looking back on Christ's first coming and, and anticipating his second coming. Uh, often the world can kind of view us as people who sort of bury our heads in the sand and, and foolishly believe that, that a man who lived 2,000 years ago is not only still alive at this exact moment, but is going to come back to earth again one day. And, and truth be told, the, the pressure from this, from the outside world, can, can actually start to take a toll on our own faith as well, if we're not careful. I, I mean, the reality is, is it has been 2,000 years that Christians have been saying, Jesus is coming again, Jesus is coming again. We've, Christians have been saying that message for 2,000 years. All the while, wars have still raged on, cancers still take millions of people's lives every year, not to mention my own pains and pressures and frustrations that day in and day out that I have to deal with and you have to deal with. So, so is it foolish to keep orienting our lives around this claim that Jesus is coming again? And, and if it's not foolish, what difference does it actually make day in and day out to our lives? 
Well, this might seem like a, a more recent modern question, but, but it's actually a question that uh, Christians have been wrestling with to some degree or another since the beginning. Turn back with me if you have your Bibles back to 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be focusing in on the, the first half of, of the New Testament passage that was read today. To give you a little bit of background while you're turning there, as you probably are aware, Peter was one of Jesus' um, 12 apostles. And so by the time Peter's writing this letter, uh, decades have passed since Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. And during that time, the, the church has grown massively. But at the same time, some false teachers have started to creep in as well. And so you can imagine what this is probably what this felt like for Peter. I mean, he's been at the forefront of Christian leadership since the beginning. And he loves the church and he loves Jesus and he wants to protect her uh, and protect the church and protect God's people from false messages and false teaching. And we don't know all that the false teachers were going around and saying, but we do know at least in part what some of these false teachers were going around and saying was something to the effect of, hey, Jesus isn't actually going to come back. You know, he, he's not really going to come back, judge the world, that sort of thing. So you can kind of just go on and, you know, go about your way, do whatever you want, mind your own business and that sort of thing. And believers at this time would have heard this and it would have caused some sort of reasonable doubt for some of them because, you know, they would have been recognizing, hey, it has been several decades at this point. And a lot of Jesus' original apostles have died at this point. So is there some truth to this? And if there's, uh, even if Jesus is coming back, well, what does that mean for me? So here towards the end of Second Peter, Peter kind of picks up uh, that train of thought to, to address it and address what some of these false teachers are saying. So let's look again and let's read again verses 8 through 13. Peter says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Uh, today, we're going to look at three things that Peter speaks to that helps us think about how to live in light of Christ's return. First, we're going to look at the return of Jesus. Then second, we're going to look at the judgment of Jesus. And then lastly, we're going to look at the heart of Jesus uh, in this passage. So let's look at those first. First, the return of Jesus. So in this passage, Peter doesn't give us a ton of details. Uh, about the return of Jesus. You know, he, he doesn't really go into different views of the millennium. He doesn't really go into different views on, on the end times a ton. Uh, he does quote a lot and allude to a lot of Old Testament passages and some of the same symbolic language that's used throughout the Bible. Uh, but just because Peter doesn't unpack a lot of the specifics uh, of what that day is going to look like when Jesus returns, it doesn't mean he leaves us empty-handed either. Uh, Peter does assert in this passage three things that are true and will be true uh, of Christ's return when it happens. And, uh, and, and these three things are, are not only helpful starting blocks for any discussion about the return of Christ, they're actually hopeful um, starting blocks as well. Uh, so let's look at them. First, Peter asserts that Jesus will return, contrary to what the false teachers are saying. And you can, you can see that clearly in verse 10 when, when Peter says, the day of the Lord will come. It, it's going to happen, contrary to what others are saying. 
But second, Peter says that Jesus' return will be unexpected as well. And he gets at this in a couple of different ways. He gets at it on the one hand by quoting Jesus' own words uh, when he says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief uh, in the night. That, that's quoting directly from Jesus. But, but he also gets at kind of the unexpected nature of, of Jesus' return by alluding to Psalm 90 uh, whenever he says that, you know, from the Lord's perspective, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. That's another way Peter is getting at kind of the unexpected nature of Jesus' return. Uh, one commentator put it like this, that when God looks at time, he looks at it with both a different perspective and a different intensity than we look at it with. You know, he looks at it with a different perspective than we look at it because uh, God has no beginning and no end. He exists outside of time. So for him, one day is like a thousand years. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Time is irrelevant to somewhat to a being who is timeless. But at the same time, God views time with a different intensity than we view it with as well. Uh, meaning, in one single 24-hour period, God sees every single thing that happens on the planet. So much detail that it would take you and I more than a thousand years to even begin to scratch the surface of what all happened just yesterday. Uh, we will never fully comprehend all that goes on in the mind of God. And, and because of that, the return of Christ is going to seem unexpected, even to the most mature and godly Christian. But this actually gives us hope. Because what that means for those of us that follow Christ is that regardless of what's going on in the world, uh, it can't be that God doesn't have a good reason or doesn't see what's going on or can't have wise and good and loving thoughts for whatever he allows to happen. That's hopeful for us this morning. But then third, Peter also says that Jesus' return will be accompanied by a new heaven and a new earth as well. This, this is an Old Testament theme that, that Jews around this time held, that Christians also held as well. They reinterpreted it, though, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the basic view was that one day God is going to set the world right again. And when that happens, all of the bad, all of the evil, all of the sickness, all of the death, all of those things will finally be done away with. And, and what's left will not only be what's good in the world, but it will be redeemed and renewed and restored and recreated as if sin had never entered the world in the first place. And that's what Peter's getting at here when he talks and uses language of saying things like the heavens will pass away with a roar or, or the heavenly bodies or the heavenly elements, depending on your translation, will, will either be burned up or dissolved or destroyed. And, and, and at first glance, that, that language can kind of sound a little bit confusing because what it can kind of sound like when we talk about the earth being kind of burned up or dissolved is it can almost sound like God's just going to strike a match and burn every single thing to the ground. And then he's just going to start over from scratch there. But, but that can't be what Peter had in the back of his mind for, for, for two reasons. One, uh, all throughout Scripture, God consistently exhibits a genuine care and compassion for every single thing he created. He, he created the world in Genesis 1 and said that it's good. So God cares for his creation. But also, even in this same verse, in verse 10, uh, the earth is still exposed at the end. So, you know, the earth can't be totally destroyed in the beginning of verse 10, if it's still around at the end of verse 10 uh, for, for works on it to be exposed at that point. So, so what's Peter getting at then when he talks about uh, that this fire or something? Um, the image Peter's given there is not of a destructive fire, but of a refining fire that refines and purifies like a blacksmith takes a piece of metal and uses it to forge something new and better than what was originally there. And this is why that's, this is encouraging for us is because this shows that God cares about our physical needs in addition to caring about our spiritual needs as well. He cares about us body and spirit. He cares about all that he's created. 
to, to give you a simple example, not a lot of you know this because I, I don't talk about this a ton, but for about the past four or five years, I've had pretty regular neck pain and it, and it kind of ebbs and flows um, for, for when my neck is really sore and really tight and things like that. Right now it's actually feeling pretty good, but, but it's kind of always there to some degree or another. And one day, here's the good news for me. One day, if Jesus, uh, I'm going to die if Jesus doesn't come back before then. And when I die, I'm not going to have neck pain anymore. But in that moment, it's not because Jesus healed my neck. It's because I don't have a body at that point. You know, my, my, my soul goes to be with the Lord and my body goes into the ground. But one day when Jesus returns, my body will be resurrected and I'll get a new and glorified and redeemed and restored body that's so, not only so much better, but more, so much more real that it makes my physical body right now seem like a simple shadow in comparison to it. C.S. Lewis kind of got at this idea in his Chronicles of Narnia series towards the, the, the last book in the series called The Last Battle. There's this scene at the very end where everyone who's been to Narnia before is they're witnessing the destruction of the, the Narnian world and they're, they're looking on the, the new Narnia or new heaven and earth, if you will. And they're kind of commenting on how it's somehow the same, but also different and better than what they're used to, but, but still the same, but different. And they're kind of going back and forth with this. When one of the characters tells the children, that wasn't the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and will always be here, just as our own world is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. Of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or waking life is from a dream. And then right after this, one of the characters exclaims, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this one. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, let's take heart and take courage that one day Jesus will return. And when he does, our world and everything in it, your body and everything you see around you, will one day be made more glorious and more real than anything we can currently comprehend. But in order for Jesus to make the world right again, he first has to deal with the wrong that exists in the world. So let's look a little bit at the judgment of Jesus in this passage. Uh, this is not what we typically think of when we think of Jesus. You know, we, we tend to, you know, even within the church, but also in the culture, just kind of have this picture of Jesus as just this, this generally nice, kind of soft-spoken, you know, mild-mannered sort of guy. Uh, but the picture that Peter gives here is that when Jesus returns, there is judgment. The world is joined, or is judged. And, and that's what Peter's getting at when he talks about the earth and the works done on it being laid bare. It, it's a picture of everything being exposed. It, it's a picture of things being laid bare where there's nowhere else to hide in that moment. And, and if you're new to Christianity, that, you know, that, that, that image and that might make you a little bit uncomfortable to, to hear because it, it is a little bit out of out of step with, with kind of the common notions in our culture of Jesus. But, but let me speak to that for a minute. You know, if, if you walk out on the street right now, pretty much anywhere in downtown Orlando and just started asking everyone you saw the question, what would make the world a better place right now? Almost everybody, if they're gonna actually give you time to talk, is gonna give you some sort of answer. I mean, they're gonna say things like, well, the world would be better if there was, you know, no more war or no more poverty or no more racism or no more, you know, sickness or things like that. Everybody has some sort of vision of, of what would make the world a better place. Uh, and, and that vision too is also central to Christianity. And, it, and it's part of what Peter's getting at when he says that in the new heavens and new earth, uh, at the end at verse 13, where he says it's where righteousness dwells. 
that word meaning that it, it's the way God intended for things to be, living according to God's good design. But what we often don't realize is that in order for God to make the world right out there, he has to deal with the wrong in you and me. To paraphrase one author, uh, the raging flames of murder and war in the world find their initial spark in the hatred that exists in mine and yours heart. That's what Jesus is coming to deal with, down to the very spark in our souls that ignite the flames uh, of wrong and evil in the world. And this is a sobering truth for, for both Christians and non-Christians this morning. Uh, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, we, we do need to be reminded that one day our, our lives will be examined and judged. As Cameron talked about last week, for those of us in Christ, that this isn't a judgment of condemnation, but of evaluation and examination. But, but in light of that, in light of all that Jesus has done for us, and in light of that he is coming back one day, that, that he will come back, um, in light of all of this, and all that, all, light of all that he's blessed me with, it, it's a natural question to stop and ask, how am I actually doing at following Jesus? How am I stewarding uh, all of the blessings he has given me? How am I stewarding the grace and mercy that he has shown me to live for his glory and for his kingdom? But this is a sobering truth as well for, for non-Christians uh, uh, this morning too, because the reality is, is all of us naturally try to cover up the, the bad in our lives and prop ourselves up to look better than we actually are. But what Peter's getting at in this passage is that one day that strategy is not going to work anymore. And on that day, all of the guilt and all of the shame that we carry around, both from the bad things we've done and from the good things we've failed to do, will be fully exposed in that moment, warts and all. Jesus will come again to, to judge the world in righteousness. Uh, but, you know, if, if he simply just wanted to come to rid, to rid the world of sin and evil, he could have done that at any time. You know, he could have done that 2,000 years ago. Uh, he could just wipe everything away. Um, uh, you know, he could have done this at any moment. So why hasn't he done that? Or, or why hasn't he done that already? Uh, in order to answer that, let's, let's look more closely at the heart of Jesus in this passage. Look back with me again at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. One of the striking things about this passage is this verse in verse nine is the only spot in the passage where we're given a glimpse into God's desires and as God's wishes. You know, the, the rest of the passage sort of tells us this is what God is doing or this is what God's going to do. But this gives you a little bit of a glimpse into the why that God's doing what he's doing. And what Peter says is that the reason Jesus has not yet returned is because he's patient towards his people. And the fact that he's patient reveals his deep desire. And that desire is for people to be a part of his kingdom. The only thing in this passage that's greater than God's desire to rid the world of sin is God's desire for sinful people to be saved from that sin. To put it another way, that the same God who loves the world and now wishes that none should perish is the exact same God who sent his son into the world and gave him so that none should perish. The same God lovingly went to the cross and took the judgment and punishment for sin, and he now lovingly and patiently waits for people to repent and turn from the punishment of sin that they'll otherwise incur apart from accepting his free gift of grace and his free gift of mercy 
What we see his grace and mercy demonstrated on the cross. And for those of us now who exist 2,000 years after that fact, we still benefit from his grace and mercy in giving us time and time and time and time and time to repent and come be a part of his kingdom. To, to give you an example, for 2,000 years, Christians have been praying the prayer that we just prayed and sang today of come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. And that's a good prayer. It's a biblical prayer. We need to be praying that prayer. But here's the beauty of the Lord and grace and mercy of Jesus this morning. In God's infinite wisdom, since he views time and views so, you know, with a different intensity than we see it, if at any point up until maybe a few years ago, if God had ever answered yes to any of those prayers for 2000 years, it would have been a default no to someone else's prayer who's praying, Lord, would you please save Cameron from his sin? Would you please save Nick from his sin? Would you please save Jeannie from her sin? God's patience in bringing you to faith in Jesus is thousands and thousands of years in the making, which only serves to amplify the great, great love that he has for you this morning. And the good news for you, the, the amazing news for you this morning is that if you're here and you're still struggling in your walk with Jesus or you've never given your life to him, the fact that I'm still speaking to you in this moment tells you there is still time. There, God's grace and mercy has, has not run out in this moment and there is still time for you to come be a part of his kingdom. And since all these things are true, uh, you know, Peter tells us how to live in light of these things, not, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude for the love and patience um, that, that God has shown us in an eager anticipation of that day that's coming when, when God is going to make the world right. He says in verse 11, he says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So, you know, since it can happen at any moment, Peter's call to us is to be ready at any moment. Uh, this is particularly relevant, and I couldn't help but think about this as I was prepping just for like mine and Sarah's own personal life, because most of you guys know this too, that we're expecting a baby soon as well, and where our due date is 12 days from this point, but any of you guys have had children before, you kind of know that due dates are irrelevant, because the fact of the matter is that baby could come this afternoon, or it could come on January 13th, and pretty much any time anytime over the next three or four weeks, uh, this baby can come. So the challenge for Sarah and I over the next month or so is to be ready at any moment for this life-changing thing that's about to happen. And there's a lot of different areas that we could focus on because Peter, he just sort of says in general that the, the way we steward our lives in light of what's coming is lives of holiness and godliness. He kind of gives that as a general parameter. And there's a lot of different ways to live a godly and holy and set apart life for God's glory and kingdom. But let me give you three as we kind of wrap up here today that I think are sort of directly lifted by implication out of this passage itself. Uh, I, I think this passage speaks into three areas. One, it speaks into how we think about evangelism. Uh, two, it, it speaks into how we think about our own personal attitudes. Uh, and then last, it speaks into how we think about our attention and what we give our attention to. So let's think about evangelism for a second. One of the things that is amazing to me in this passage is in verse 12, where, where Peter ties our holiness and godliness to somehow hastening the return of the Lord. And, and there's a lot we could say there. That's a sermon for a different day where we get into, you know, God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility and all that. But, but, but one particular way, though, that I do think is warranted, at least in part from this passage, that we can say that that's true, that, that somehow we participate with the Lord in, in redeeming and restoring and, and of all things, is that if we're living totally holy and obedient lives, 
We're sharing our faith. We're making disciples. We're pursuing the lost, which is exactly the whole reason why God has delayed his coming so that more and more people can be brought into his kingdom. So in light of that, it's good for us to ask ourselves, am I pursuing the lost? And if so, who? Because the reality is if we can't answer the who behind that question, they probably don't exist in our life. So what steps are you taking in your neighborhood and in your communities to engage with those who don't know Jesus? And if you are actively taking those steps, are you exhibiting the same patience with them that Jesus has shown you in bringing, him to, in bringing you to faith? Uh, in terms of our attitudes, you know, Peter ties the return of Christ uh, in verse 13 with Jesus' own promise as well. It's rooted in the very character of God. Uh, it's going to happen. There, there is going to be a day where sin and evil and death and destruction and neck pain all are going to be done away with. And it's not wishful thinking. It's taking God at his own word. Yes. And because of that, this should shape our overall demeanor and attitudes and posture. So as, as you view the problems in the world, whether they be big picture problems like political problems or war, or even problems that are more personal to you individually, whether it be the death of a loved one or just inconveniences in life, is your response to those things marked by an unshakable and confident hope that's evident to others? Or is it marked by anxiety and cynicism and bitterness that causes you to retreat from the world? And then lastly, in terms of attention span, uh, it, it's, it's easy to miss uh, in this, but in a matter of six verses, Peter quotes to or alludes to about six or seven different Old Testament passages and quotes Jesus' own words in Matthew 24. Uh, he, he quotes scripture effortlessly uh, because he's immersed in it. But for many of us, being immersed in God's word is impossible because we immerse ourselves in entertainment and social media and millions of other distractions that pull our attention away from the Lord to other and lesser things. Uh, just by way of challenge, just to kind of put this in, in real practical terms, uh, if you've never done this, this is a great exercise. It's challenging and, conviction, uh, and convicting, but I challenge you, to, if you have an iPhone, to look at your screen time and see on average how much screen time do I spend on my phone each day and weigh that with how much time on average am I spending in the Word and in prayer. And in doing so, do it not with a posture of self-condemnation or self-hatred, uh, but out of examination to say like, Lord, what actually is shaping me? By what am I giving my attention to? Because the reality is, is what we give our attention to is going to shape us. And it's impossible to be mindful of the return of Jesus if our minds are pulled to other things. So as, as we wrap up today, let's be reminded that since God is lovingly patient towards you and towards me, and he is gonna fulfill the promise of his return one day to make the world right again, we, we must live lives of hope-filled holiness and godliness as we wait for and hasten his coming. And, and like the Japanese soldier I mentioned at the beginning, our commander is also gonna return to us one day. But when he does, he's not gonna look at us and how we've stewarded our lives and, and see the sacrifices we've made for his kingdom, the heartaches we've endured, the sleepless nights we've endured for him. And he's not gonna say to us, all of your sacrifice has ultimately been a waste of time. But instead he's gonna look on us who faithfully served him and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You can finally rest now because the battle is finally over. Let's keep pressing forward in faith until that day becomes a reality.